Hello and welcome to episode 378 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Throughout history, trying to prove an individual guilty of murder without a body has been difficult. And in the UK, there was a misconception for centuries that there could be no murder trial without a body. The view was influenced by the Camden Wonder case in the 17th century. You might know it. When 70-year-old William Harrison vanished from the market town of Chipping Camden, Gloucestershire. Following an investigation, three suspects were executed for his murder. It was, as you can imagine, somewhat problematic when two years later, in waltz William, claiming that he'd been abducted and enslaved in Turkey. But the outstanding developments in technology and forensic science have meant that in recent times a murder conviction can be sought despite there being no body much, much more easily. For example, you recall in 2013, Mark Bridger was found guilty of murdering five-year-old April Jones in mid-Wales. Her body was tragically never found, but the DNA found in Bridger's house matched him to her disappearance and her murder. Which brings us to our story today from London. A man goes missing, and everything suggests murder. There's no body. Was it murder? First, let's set some context to the events I'm going to describe with our guest of the month and year game. Jerry Halliwell topped the UK charts with her take on its reigning men. Look, someone must have liked it. Survivor from Destiny's Child was number one in the US, and in Australia, the legend that is Michael Crawford spent two weeks at number one in the album charts with the Disney album. In the news this month, it was the Accra Sports Stadium disaster when 129 football supporters were killed in a stampede caused by the firing of tear gas by police following a decision by the referee in a match in Ghana. It was the 46th Eurovision Song Contest and Estonia won singing Everybody. This was in Copenhagen. Berlusconi won the Italian general election again. Not much of a clue, is it? The film Shrek debuted. Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott punched a protester who threw an egg at him in real North Wales. Remember that? And finally, in true crime news, Jane Andrews, the former dresser, whatever that means, to the Duchess of York, was convicted of the murder of Thomas Cressman, a shocking story that I covered in a previous episode. So did you guess the month and year? It was May 2001. Look, you're going to have to get it right one day. Okay, so today's story is from Harrow in northwest London, which is about 15 miles from the centre of London. Originally born in Trinidad, Donald, or Don as he was known, Banfield, came to the UK in 1960 and he settled in Harrow with his partner Shirley. The couple had their first child Kevin in 1968 and went on to have their daughter Lynette in 1971. Don and Shirley married in 1980 but it was a far from happy marriage. There were, I think it's fair to say, challenges on both sides. And according to Shirley, her husband was a womanizer and a heavy gambler. But they managed to stay together for a long time. Don was an accountant who worked for the BBC and later for William Hill Bookies. And in January 2001, he announced his retirement. As this date approached, a couple planned to sell their home and potentially move to the northeast of England. In the spring of 2001, a sale was agreed for £179,000, just before London house prices became quite so ridiculous for normal people. 
We've spoken about the issues in the marriage and Don knew that for him, it was for all intents and purposes over and he'd confided to friends and also his son Kevin that he planned to use his share of the money from the sale of the house along with his pension to retire back to Trinidad. He loved the country and when he was there, he felt he could relax and enjoy his golden years. But then Don disappeared. On the 19th of May 2001, his friend Rod McIntosh became concerned as he'd not heard from Don as they reported him missing. When the police turned up at the house to visit his wife Shirley, she said that Don had a habit of disappearing and she said that Don's pal Rod, he suffered from mental health problems which caused him to overreact. She told officers how her husband would often disappear when he had money and she said he was a womanizer and a gambler. She even suspected he'd done a Reggie Perrin and faked his own death. She gave the police a description of her husband leading to the creation of a photo fit as the police looked for information surrounding Dan's disappearance. The following day, Don's daughter Lynette told the police that three months before her dad vanished, he began moving his belongings out of the home and she'd noticed that his passport was missing. It seemed pretty clear to her that this was a planned move from her dad as the family moved to the next stage of their lives. Don was a grown adult and we all have the right to disappear from our lives if we choose to do so right and there was no sign of any foul play so Don was listed as a missing person like so many thousands of others who go missing in the UK every year. Within six months of Don's disappearance Shirley and her daughter had moved to the northeast to Whitby in Yorkshire but they soon moved from there to Canterbury in Kent in 2005. And whilst living in the leafy Kent suburbs, the two women lived a quiet life with neighbours only seeing them in the garden or leaving the house to shop. And as is so often, as time slips by and there is no sign of a missing person, it's really hard to keep generating interest in this person when there is no new information to share, which is of course a huge frustration for families of missing people who are just looking for that one snippet of information which could reveal where their missing loved one is. And that could well have been the end of the story today had it not been for Don's previous employers at William Hill. They became suspicious about Shirley and her daughter's house moves, as of course they were still liable for his pension. And when the police carried out a routine review of the case in 2009, Shirley told them that Don He'd visited her during the Christmas of 2008. But officers weren't convinced. Why hadn't she told them that he'd visited? The story didn't feel right to them. So investigators began to take a look deeper into Don's disappearance and they made some disturbing discoveries. Officers discovered that before he disappeared, it seemed that Don had become fearful for his life and had told his doctor, friends and even the police of assaults by his wife and daughter that he believed were murder attempts. Don's doctor recorded an account of one of their conversations and it's startling to hear, I think. Listen to what he told the doctor. A couple of weeks ago, in the middle of the night, he found himself having been handcuffed behind his back and his wife trying to tie down his legs and put a plastic bag over his head. He says that he woke up and was able to salvage the situation. 
Another time, his daughter tried to spray in his eyes while he was asleep. And when he tried to confront her, his wife started screaming at him. At which point, his wife brought a knife and they both said to him, Why don't you just die? Don had been also concerned about the food he'd been eating and became worried as to whether it had been poisoned. If true, it sounds a pretty terrifying place to be, doesn't it? And on the 11th of May 2001, just a week or so before he disappeared, Don had even gone to the police with his concerns. He spoke with a PC about his family and the worries about what was happening, but he signed the PC's pocketbook entry, making it clear that he did not want the police to take any further action. And the very same day, he'd also signed the final documentation confirming the sale of the couple's house. It seemed that by signing this agreement, he may just have signed his own death sentence. Don had spoken to his friend Rod McIntosh about his concerns and asked him to intercept his post after he found missing letters and checks from his employer stashed behind the sofa that he hadn't seen. Don also spoke about his concerns to his son Kevin and even asked to move in with him. And it transpired that following his disappearance, when Shirley had provided a description of Don to officers, she'd given them a false description, which led to a photo fit so inaccurate that even her son didn't recognise it. Detectives looked in Lynette's notebook where she'd written entries about murdering a man, killing women with a pitchfork, burying bodies and placing a body in a car. Another post read, Oh, thank heavens for the scrappage scheme. Lynette's red Ford Fiesta was crushed as part of that government scheme in 2008. Of course, this proved nothing and it could be irrelevant. But to officers, all the circumstantial evidence strongly pointed towards the horrifying possibility that Don had been killed by his wife and daughter for financial reasons as well as Don's proceeds from the sale of the house which had allowed them to start again, Shirley had also helped herself to the 29000 or so from Don's pension. She moved very quickly to get this. In 2009, police officers examined Don's home and they dug up his garden and the concrete garage floor, but his body wasn't discovered there. And in February 2010, Shirley and her daughter were arrested and then released on bail. Shirley was clearly panicking about the situation at this time and she wanted to sell her house as soon as possible. She had told an estate agent that she was willing to accept just £20,000 for the house despite it being valued closer to 400000 This was on the proviso that it could be sold within 36 hours. Lynette and her mum then spent 27000 on a lavish holiday to Grenada. They flew first class for four weeks and soaked up the gorgeous Caribbean sunshine, drinking cocktails, and treated themselves to spa treatments. Then Shirley and Lynette were arrested in 2011, after inquiries in the UK, US and Trinidad failed to find any proof that Don was still alive. They were both charged with murder, fraud, forgery, and conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. In 2012, the mum and daughter stood trial at the Old Bailey, the pair denied murder, but pleaded guilty to averting the course of justice and conspiracy to defraud William Hill over the pension. During the trial, it was highlighted how Don had planned to use his pension 
and share of money from the house to start a new life. Crispin Aylett QC prosecuting said he was biding his time. Once the house was sold, he was planning on making a new life for himself on his own with the 60 grand he was expecting from the sale of the house. At the time, Don Banfield was obviously expecting to receive a large amount of money from the sale of the house. He also had his pension from William Hill to live on. He decided to set up a new life for himself on his own. Shirley, on the other hand, perhaps faced a rather bleaker future. She was 54 and on the verge of being abandoned without money to rehouse both herself and Lynette. Without Don's pension or just a share of it, they would have less money to live on than before. This must have caused a tension in the household to make Don Banfield fear for his own safety. In response to Shirley and Annette helping themselves to Don's pension and house funds, the prosecution said, they can only have done so in the certain knowledge that he would not be coming back to expose them. It was revealed in court that a police officer went to Don's home when he disappeared and was told by Lynette that the last time she'd seen him was in the bathroom on May the 13th, 2001. Shirley claimed he'd left without even saying where he was going. QC Aylett said, In other words, he just disappeared, vanished from their lives. They told the officer that he often disappeared for long periods of time and said they weren't worried about him. The officer accepted what he was told. I suppose why wouldn't they? The court heard from a neighbour who gave evidence claiming to have heard Shirley screaming, One of these days I'm going to kill you. When asked about this during her evidence, Shirley said that she was probably shouting at her pet cockatoo. She said, The only person I'd have said that to is the bird because he used to peck the wires of his cage. Shirley said she had the bird for 15 years. I didn't realise people still kept birds in their homes, but I digress. Shirley confessed to having lied to the police about seeing her husband alive. She said, I panicked. I just wanted to get out of the police station. I wanted to get back to my bird, the cockatoo that is. I knew I didn't want to go to prison. I wanted to get back and feed the bird that was at home on its own. She also admitted to forging a letter so his pension money could be transferred into a bank account she controlled. She insisted she only did this as she believed that Don was still alive and had just walked out. She told the jurors that she wanted to flush him out so he would sign the documents needed to transfer the house. She said, I was very angry. I wanted to get his attention. I wanted him to come back and sign the papers for the transfer of the house. As far as I knew, he'd gone off and would be back at some time. Shirley said she firmly believed that Don had indeed faked his own death. It was revealed in court that Shirley had to apply to the High Court to get her share of the house in northwest London, as her husband had failed to sign the vital transfer deeds. Shirley persuaded the court by saying that her daughter was pregnant by her boyfriend of six years, even though her daughter had never been allowed by her controlling mother to ever have a boyfriend. After a month-long trial in April 2012, Shirley and Lynette were convicted by a 10-to-1 majority of Don Banfield's murder. The mum received an 18-year sentence while her daughter was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Dramatically, Shirley collapsed in the dock as the jury returned their guilty verdicts. The judge told her and her daughter 
The three aggravating features are premeditation, commission of your offence for gain, and concealment of the body. Don's sister, Kay Hackett, read out an emotional statement to the court. She said, When Don went missing in May 2001, a wave of shock ran through his closest and extended family. Not knowing where he was and whether he was alive was a constant ache in everyone's hearts. His mother Irene sadly died knowing that he was missing, longing for news of his safe return. The Met Police detective responsible for this case said, Shirley and Annette's actions were driven by pure greed and the evidence to support this is overwhelming. They have consistently deceived the police and other agencies in a bid to cover their tracks. And Don Banfield's first wife told a newspaper that Shirley Banfield was a manipulative liar. She said, she was always scheming and lying. It doesn't surprise me that she killed him. The last thing Don told his friend Rod McIntosh was, did not let them get away with my murder. There was a somewhat ghoulish twist after the trial when it was revealed that Shirley's brother, Kenneth Hagon, worked as a gravedigger. Though there is, of course, no suggestion of any wrongdoing by him, the police said they planned to revisit this line of inquiry, which could have led to the graves he worked on being exhumed in the continuing hunt for the body. When he was approached, Kenneth Hagen refused to comment. So Lynette and Shirley were both sentenced under joint enterprise. This sometimes controversial law allows two or more people to be convicted of the same criminal offence in relation to the same incident, even when they had different types of levels of involvement. Notoriously, the joint enterprise was used in the prosecution of David Bentley. Remember that one? In November 1952, David and his pal Christopher Craig were caught by the police robbing a factory in Croydon. Christopher, who was armed with a gun, shot and killed a police officer. Both were charged under joint enterprise but as Christopher was only 16 years old at the time, he avoided the death penalty. Despite not being the one who killed the police officer and being 18 years old, David was indeed sentenced to death and later executed at Wandsworth Prison. And in more recent years, we've seen this, such as the conviction of several members of a gang who killed Gary Newlove. Do you remember this? It was in August 2007 when the dad of three confronted a gang of youths who were committing criminal damage in Warrington. In response, this gang, they brutally beat Gary, who died hours later in hospital. Three members of the gang were charged with murder and handed sentences. But the debate around this was raised again towards the defendant, Jordan Cunliffe. Whilst he admitted being at the scene of the crime, he didn't take part in the assault. In addition, he also had a degenerative eye condition. He was registered blind yet he was sentenced despite not being involved in the assault or seeing it. And there are numerous other examples that I've covered on this podcast. I'm totally in favour of this law. I wonder if you are. A year after Shirley and Lynette Banfield were sent to prison for the murder of Don, the mum and daughter sought to appeal their convictions. William Cleggusey, who was representing Shirley, told the criminal court the evidence proved that Don Banfield disappeared over the weekend of the 12th and 13th of May 2001. The Crown did not suggest when, where or how he was killed, who was present, the mechanism of death or what happened to the body. 200,000 people disappear each year, 
and 2,000 of those are not heard from again. Don Banfield could have been one of those 2,000. And the convictions were overturned. Lady Justice Rafferty, when explaining this decision, said, This was an alleged joint enterprise murder with no body, no suggested mechanism of death, no identified day when the murder was said to have occurred, no time and no place, and no suggestion of what happened to the body. QC Clegg had accepted the likelihood that either the mum or daughter had killed Don Banfield, but the judge said there was no evidence that a rational jury could conclude that Shirley and Nanette acted together to kill him. The Crown lawyers argued that the women had motive and opportunity for murder, but the judge emphasised suspicion without more does not equate to proof. The courts regularly see proved allegations of homicide against a woman acting alone. The submission of no case to answer should have been allowed. These appeals will be allowed and both convictions will be quashed. She added, for the most evidence of reasons, there could be no question of a retrial. So there we have it. Shirley and Nanette were found guilty. Then their convictions were quashed. So they are now living their lives as free women after their convictions were overturned. It's now been over two decades since Don Banfield vanished without a trace. Did he simply leave to enjoy his retirement or did something more sinister happen? Without access to his pension or the money from his house sale, It's pretty hard to believe he left to start a new life, isn't it? Due to this, and alongside his recorded fears, I think it's wholly understandable why his wife and daughter were arrested on suspicion of murder. However, as we started this episode today, without a body, even now it's extremely difficult to conclude exactly what happened in May 2001. Unfortunately for his family and friends, it seems likely that we'll never know for certain what happened to Don. And much as I would like to picture him enjoying his retirement with a cocktail on a beach in Trinidad, I don't think for a moment he is. Do you? Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast and a huge thank you to Megan Grant for the research and writing of this episode. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 92,000 of us who talk UK true crime 24-7. It's really many things, but dull is not one of them. And if you haven't yet watched a recording of the True Crime Podcasters Roundtable from Sunday, just head to YouTube and search UK True Crime Live, or you can check any of my social channels. Bethan from Seeing Red and Stuart from British Murders were fantastic guests who joined me, Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and Mike from Murder Mile. While you're on YouTube, why not subscribe so you don't miss any of my other videos? And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime for loads of bonus episodes. Number 73 is due this week and tons of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Simon Lamb and Carol Bonzel. Thank you both so much. Your support is so much appreciated. Okay, so that's all from me for another week, the host of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast and aiming for the stars, number 36. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy and remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.